We've been uh, doing a, a sermon series called Simple Church, and uh, without introduction, we're going to just jump into the scripture this morning, and then we'll circle back and do a, a quick review. The passage we've been looking at is Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Hear the word of the Lord. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So let me just quickly circle back. We've heard this story now uh, a number of weeks in a row. The context is that Peter has just preached his very first sermon to this large crowd that has gathered, and the word of God cut to the heart of 3,000 people. There were 3,000 that people the day, that day who were cut to, the heart, to their heart, and they said to Peter, what should we do? And Peter, without skipping a beat, he said, repent, change your course, be baptized in the name of Jesus. This promise is for you, it's for your children, it's for all whom our Lord, uh, the Lord our God will call. And so that day, 3,000 people were baptized in the name of Jesus. And immediately, what that did is it confronted the disciples with a question. In the midst of their celebration, in the midst of their congratulatory high fives, like, whoa, God is doing some amazing things here, it dawned on them, 3,000 people. Like, what are we supposed to do now? There was no, like, manual for what do we do with, with 3,000 people. And, and so they... They began to think, well, I guess what we ought to do are the same things that Jesus did with us, how he helped us become disciples. And so what we have in Acts chapter 2, the passage we just read, is kind of the strategy of what they did, saying if we do these things, this is how we're going to make disciples. So up until this point, they had been a very tight-knit fellowship. 12 of them. And, and we know there were, there were some others. There was an occasion where Jesus sent out 70. So, so it was still a fairly small crowd, smaller than what we have here today. So they, there were this close, tight-knit fellowship of people that were all very much alike. And then overnight, that became this very large, loosely-knit diverse community of believers, people that had come from all over, all now suddenly part of this, this circle of believers. And so what should we do? Well, they figured the, the first thing that we're going to do, we, we need to share with them the teaching of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus said, make disciples, teach them everything that I have commanded you. And so that was part of their strategy. Let's share with them the parables that Jesus shared with us. Let's share with them the commands that Jesus shared with us. Let's tell them the stories that, that Jesus told us. And so they did that. They devoted themselves 
to the apostles' teaching. But that's not the only thing they did. They were uh, as mindful of the nature of the community that they were forming as they were about this teaching. They were mindful of what kind of community is this that, that we're trying to develop? What kind of fellowship is this? Because when Jesus created this fellowship, even with the 12 people, it was a very unique fellowship. And he was always teaching them about what this fellowship is supposed to be like. So we think back to some of the events. Remember when Jesus came up to Levi, the tax collector, the despised tax collector? And he looked at him and he said, Levi, follow me. And the other disciples who were already part of the, the fellowship looked at one another like, are you kidding me? You want him to be part of this team? What Jesus was doing in that moment was he was instructing them something about the nature of this new community, this new fellowship. Think about the time that Jesus went to Mary and Martha's house. Mary and Martha invited him in and Jesus began to teach and the 12 disciples sat down at Jesus' feet. Do you know who else sat down at his feet? Mary. Now to us, we think nothing of that. This is unheard of. Jesus treats Mary the same way he treats his 12 disciples. He includes her in this tight-knit circle of, friend, of disciples. What is he doing? He's teaching the disciples something about the nature of this new community, this new fellowship. And it's contrary to things that they, they know, the, the stereotypes that they have. How about when James and John were bickering? about which one of them was the greatest disciple. How do you have that argument? Like, what do you say? I, I pray more than you do. <laughs> okay. Uh, so they're bickering about who's the, the greatest disciple, and Jesus turned to them and he said, don't do this. You're acting like Gentiles who are always trying to lord it over one another. In this fellowship, in this community, if you want to be the greatest, the way you do that is you become servant of all. So again, he's teaching them about the nature of this community. Uh, Jesus was once told that his mother and his brothers had come to visit him, and he was with the, 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 these disciples. And he said, "These are my, this is my family. Again, he's teaching them something about the nature of, of the fellowship. There was one occasion where Jesus said, let's go to your house, Peter. And what we know is that Peter's mom was really sick. And this had to be weighing on Peter. And I think Jesus had a, a, a defined purpose for wanting to go to Peter's house. He knew that this was troubling Peter. He knew Peter's mom was sick. And so they go to Peter's house, and in the context of that, he goes up and he, he heals Peter's mother. Again, he's teaching them something about the nature of this fellowship. So in their day-to-day -day life with, the, with Jesus, the disciples, they're learning by his teaching, but they're also learning just by observing, just by watching every day the way Jesus interacts with people and the way he organizes this, this community. He was always talking about these two words, one another, one another, love one another, forgive one another, encourage one another, pray for one another, 
Confess your sins to one another. Serve one another. Honor one another. Be devoted to one another. One another over and over and over again. And so now, when the disciples are confronted with this question, how are we going to make disciples of these 3,000 people, their mind naturally goes, one, teaching. We've got to teach them. But two, we've got to create that same type of community that Jesus created with us. We've got to pass down those same, those same values that, that Jesus handed down to us. So in our series, Simple Church, what we've been trying to do is whittle down the practices of the church to get to those essential practices, those things that, that Jesus and those things that the disciples did over and over again. Because when we can figure out what those things are, then we can have laser focus. This is what God has called us to do. And what we find out, at least from the book of Acts, is that it was effective. It worked. And so far, we've said a couple things. We said the early church was spirit-empowered. They clearly operated in the power of the spirit. Remember, Jesus said, don't go, don't do anything until the, the spirit comes on you. So they operated in the power of the spirit. The second thing they did is they were Christ-centered. Peter has the opportunity to preach this first message, and he is on point. I mean, think of all the hundreds of different things he could talk about. He talks about one thing, Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, that, on point. So the, the church is spirit-empowered, Christ-centered. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching. We talked about that last week, and today we're going to talk about the fellowship. They're devoted to the fellowship. An effective church today has to do two things really well. Uh, an effective church today has to be anchored in the word of God. An effective church today has to have a rich fellowship. We're called to both of those things. We must be anchored in the word of God. Uh, the words the Bible says. Today when you say those words, the Bible says, not only does it elicit kind of a uh, kind of a stiff arm but it, it almost creates a gag reflex in people like don't trouble me with what the bible says the bible is antiquated it's out of date doesn't have anything to say to us today for us as believers those words the bible says we have to hold those in the highest regard because when the Bible says something, we believe that God is speaking. God has revealed himself to us in his word. And we need to read it carefully. We need to read it uh, closely. But, but we believe that God is speaking to us in the word of God. So we hold that in high esteem. But the other thing we have to do really well is we have to create that same community that Jesus created. That same fellowship that the disciples created. I was trying to think of, of an, an analogy of a church that is uh, fellowship, uh, teaching rich but fellowship poor. Teaching rich but fellowship poor. And, and the best thing I could come up with was a donut. Uh, is, think of a donut. Let's go with like Marty Brubaker's chocolate eclair. And, and you've got this incredible chocolate eclair and it looks you know crisp and wonderful on the outside and this layer of chocolate but imagine no filling in the chocolate eclair like all the good stuff it's missing 
I like this analogy. I think that is the, I think that is the church that is teaching rich, but fellowship poor. Like we, we, boy, when it comes to the word of God and it comes to teaching, we have got it down. The teaching is amazing, but if there's no fellowship, all the good stuff, the filling, it's missing. And, and everybody recognizes it. There's just something that's not right. There's something that's missing. So let's go the opposite direction. Imagine a church that is fellowship rich and teaching poor. And actually, as I thought about it, I, I have to use the word imagine because I don't think such a thing exists. Because when the Bible uses the word fellowship, it doesn't just mean getting together. If you take out the word of God, essentially what you have are relationships that have no rudder. Like there's no direction that those relationships are going. That's not fellowship. It's something else, and it may even be something very good. We need social interaction. But God calls us to, to fellowship. And so a church that's going to be effective today has to be anchored in the word of God. We've got to do that well. We've got to proclaim the truths of God. We've got to be a learning church, a growing church that's, that's growing more and more in the word of God. And we also have to create this community, this rich fellowship. And so I want to talk today about fellowship, and I'm going to break it down into to three categories. The peculiarity of fellowship I know that's a strange word. The pattern of fellowship and the purpose of fellowship. And, and if you're keeping preaching score, yes, that's three Ps. That's, that's very good. Give me, a, give me a point today. The peculiarity of fellowship. Last week in our new member class, we were talking about the Apostles' Creed, and, and a question was asked about that phrase, the communion of saints. What do we mean when we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. What do we mean? Well, the communion of saints really refers to the peculiarity of fellowship. That which draws us together is not because we like each other so much. Now, hopefully we, we do, and hopefully that comes, but that is not the, the driving force of what bonds us together as a community. That which draws us together is not because we all look alike. Praise God, that which draws us together is not because we're all Dutch. I mean, there was a time. When you're not Dutch, you know, you know how that goes. You're not much. And, uh, and it was always said as a joke when I, when I first heard it in Michigan, but you knew there was something to it. <laughs> That's not what draws us together. It's not because we speak the same language. It's not because we're all part of the same economic class. That which draws us together is one thing. We are bound together in the name of Jesus Christ. And that makes us a peculiar fellowship because what it does is it draws people together who otherwise might not ever be together. That is the, the, the most beautiful picture of the church is this People coming from all walks of life, all corners of the community, a diverse group of people all coming together because of one reason. They're bound together in the name of Jesus Christ. So when we say, I believe in the communion of saints, what we're saying is, I believe in this worldwide community, all those people that we just saw on the screen, 
people from every walk of life, from every corner of this planet, I believe in that community and that I'm part of that community. Shoulder to shoulder with these other people who we may have absolutely nothing in common, but because we have Jesus in common, because we have the same Father, we're actually brothers and sisters, and that is amazing. I want you to, to just grasp how radical this was, especially in the first century. Because in the first century, the lines of demarcation that separated people were so sharp. I mean, people just did not cross boundaries, did not cross these, these social boundaries. Samaritans, you know who they hung out with? Samaritans. And Jews with Jews, and Gentiles with Gentiles, and men with men, and women with men, women, children with children, slaves with slaves, the freed with the freed, the upper class with the upper class. In every stratosphere, they, they segregated themselves according to these, these social constructs. And so into that world, God plants his church. And he said, I'm forming a new community, and that which is going to be the glue of this community, that's what's going to draw us together is one thing. It's our, our brotherhood and our sisterhood in Jesus Christ. You, you might even go as far as saying this. What Jesus did is he created an improper community. According to the rules of the day, this community of of Christians, it was an improper community. They were doing things that were thought ought not be done. Slaves coming and being part of the fellowship on equal footing with owners of slaves, men with women, children invited to participate. Samaritans included in this fellowship? Listen to how Paul describes it and try and grasp what a radical thought this is that he's sharing. He says in Galatians chapter 3, you all are sons of God, children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ Jesus. You've clothed yourselves with Jesus Christ. Therefore, there's neither Jew nor Greek. I mean, that difference has gone out the window. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's no longer slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, this is what that is not saying. We don't lose our individuality when we come to Christ. Men are still men. Women are still women. Africans are still Africans. Caucasians are still Caucasians. It's not that we lose our individuality. It's that which draws us together, transcends all of those differences. Listen to it this way. Paul says to the Ephesians, make every effort. That means you're going to have to work at this because it doesn't come easily. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body. There's one Spirit as you were all called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, who's over all, through all, and in all. As we've already said this morning, nowhere are we going to see the peculiarity of fellowship more strongly than on that day that, that we get to heaven. 
And when God establishes new kingdom, the peculiarity of this fellowship, people coming from every walk of life, it's going to be glorious. So we are a peculiar community. Second thing I want to talk about is the pattern of fellowship. Specifically, what does it mean when it says they devoted themselves to the fellowship? What was it that they devoted themselves to? How does that play out in real time? Well, look again at some of the the passage. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. That word together repeats three times. And so maybe the simplest thing that we can say about fellowship is that it requires being together. To have fellowship, we have to be together. All the believers were together. They met together. They ate together. Now, I I don't know in the first century if that was easier to do than it is today. I mean, we might make the case that they had less competing for their time, that it was easier to, to be together. Certainly, they were... Um, a threatened community, and that naturally draws people together. What we know for us today is we do. We have 101 different things that are competing for our time. And so if we're going to get together, it is only going to happen through devotion. That's the only way it's going to happen. It's going to require us to make a commitment to say, I want to be together with other believers, with my brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the challenges, maybe it's one of the biggest challenges that confronts us is actually the building, the building that we're in. Uh, Even though maybe you, like me, were raised on the song, the church is not a building, the church is not a steeple, the church is not a resting place, the church is the people. Anyone else? Am I the only one? Yeah, good. Otherwise, I would have felt really foolish. Um... Even though we are told that, we are so patterned to think this equals church. And more so than just this building, this hour, 9.30 to 10.30, 10.45 if, if Pastor Scott goes long, that's church. Last night at the wedding, I was sitting briefly with Tim Wessels, and Tim said, so how are things going with the church? And you know where my mind went right away? 9.30 to 10.30. Well, we've got about 130 people coming. Why did my mind go to that? Like, church equals worship from 9.30 to 10.30. We have a diminished understanding of what church is, and part of it is because of of the building. Now, praise God for the building. Praise God for all the things that the, the building affords us. But I think in the first century, they were unencumbered from that, um, the weight of that expectation. And so church was not a building. Church was not an hour. Church was the web of relationships. Church was the fellowship, the network of church. And that meant that church could happen in the marketplace. And church could happen on the playground. And most importantly, church could happen in their homes. They actually opened their doors to their private homes 
and invited people in and they ate together. They had fellowship together. Out in front of our church, we have a couple signs. They say Crossview Church. Those signs could just as easily be in your front yard. I think that's where we need to get to as a church, that we need to start understanding that church is not this place. Church is where we are and where we come together, and that can be everywhere. Jesus said, where two or three come together in my name, there I am. That's church. You know what the amazing thing is? Is it's so scalable. So it worked with 12 people. And now they've got 3,000 people, and nowhere do I see anybody breaking out in a sweat. Like, what are we going to do? Where are we going to put them all? Today, if we had suddenly had 3,000 people saying, I want to be a part of Crossview Church, we'd immediately hold a meeting like, all right, we gotta need a bigger sanctuary. We need five services. 3,000 people means 3,000 homes that are all part of the church. The, the ground right now, uh, as you are probably aware, is shifting in the world of church. And we're not sure where it's going, but one of the things that I suspect is that this is on the horizon. The churches are going to, even as they get bigger, they're going to get smaller. And, and they're going to start to take places in homes. There's going to be a day where the annual invite your friend to church day means annual invite your friend to your small group. How did 3,000 people do it? 3,000 people didn't meet in, in one home. They formed small groups. And that, I, I'm convinced, is still the pattern for us. To do fellowship, we need to do it in the context of small groups, which is a perfect segue for me to just put in a little plug. In September, we're going to be kicking our small groups back up, and, and we've got a super exciting curriculum that we're going to be following. We're going to be following the Chosen uh, movies. I don't know if you've seen any of those. They are done so well. Uh, we're going to be using that uh, as a kind of a platform to gather together. My hope is that as a church, we're going to have three new small groups in addition to the ones that we already have because we need to fellowship. And yes, it's not easy. It requires making a commitment. But that's what the early church did. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. Finally, let me close quickly with the purpose of fellowship. God has given us fellowship as a means to help us grow. Uh, in the same way that a, a baby needs human contact, needs human touch, needs relationship in order for them to grow, we as Christians need human contact. We need that relationship to, to mature in our faith. So it's in the practice of fellowship that, that we do two things. We give and we receive. We give. There are things that God has placed in you that he placed in you not for you. That's a great thought. God has put some things in you not for you. They're for other people. He's given you a spiritual gift, and the word says that it's for the common good. I have put this in you for the good of everyone else. So we have an obligation to one another to give that which God has entrusted to us. We give of our time. We give of ourselves. We give of our resources. In the context of those small groups, those 3,000 people started to care for one another. If somebody had a need and someone had the capacity to help meet that need, they made that happen. That's what we're called to do today. So we give, and the other thing we do is we receive. 
We are part of this web of relationships that has given us, God's given us this safety net. I love to think of the church as a safety net. The government is not our safety net. God's our safety net. We are each other's safety net. So we're called to be there for one another. You never have to go through a crisis alone if you're part of the church of God and the church is functioning as it's supposed to. We're going to be wrapping this series up in the next two weeks. Next week we're talking about worship and then we're going to be talking about service together. Join me as we pray. Lord, uh, we're so grateful for the community of saints and that you've uh, included us in that community. And Lord, um, help us be devoted to the fellowship. Lord, help us um, as we examine the ways that we can come together and encourage one another and, and prod one another on in the faith. Lord, I lift up our small groups to you and I pray even now that um, you'll be working in the hearts of people as they consider uh, involvement in that. We praise you uh, for this fellowship. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.